You're listening to Pocket Politics, the podcast from Voting Smarter. Voting Smarter is a nonprofit making civic engagement easy for everyone in a fair, fast, and fun way. Be sure to check out Vote Plus, our browser extension found in the Chrome Store, to see if the companies you shop at online share your values. Also, check out Candidate, our dating app for elections found in the Apple App Store. To see which candidates running in your area you should bring home to mom on election day and who you should leave on red. Today's podcast is a departure from our normal unbiased coverage of public policy and elections. We will be discussing news and public policy proposals from the highly varied political perspectives of our diverse team of volunteers. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Pocket Politics, the podcast from Voting Smarter, the team that brought you our iOS app candidate that matched thousands of users to the politicians they could bring home to mom back in 2020, where you you spend five minutes and you find out who you match with for president, House, Senate, governor, trying to make voting easy. We also have a new product that matches you with companies as you shop, so you can shop your beliefs and make a difference with every purchase. Tonight, we've got a great panel. We're gonna talk about the current events of the last few days. Uh, we've, we've got uh, Adam Cable. Uh, he is uh, one of our team members. He's on the center left. Um, he's been working with us a lot for on our research and has joined the podcast and blog team. Adam, welcome to your first podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We had to get somebody on here. Uh, we have a regular uh, podcast staple, Ben Coburn. Ben is on the right. He, uh, he has awesome ideas around how to reform government. And uh, Ben, thanks for being here tonight. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. I promise he'll, it'll be his voice hosting in the future, uh, not mine. Uh, we've also got uh, Adam Moore coming from the Great White North uh, up in New Hampshire, where he, he's going to either live free or die. Adam, or Adam, Andrew, thanks for being here again. Uh, you are a libertarian on the panel. Um, welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, we also have uh, Isaac Tucker Raspberry coming live from the road. Life is a highway, and he's on one. And uh, he is on the, uh, by his words, the far left, the Bernie left, uh, the Bernie man left. Uh, welcome, Isaac. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. He's probably honking his horn at somebody. He'll be back. We also have Sean Duffy, uh, also um, on the, the progressive side of things. Uh, Sean, we're, uh, we're familiar with you if you've been listening to our podcast for a while. Uh, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Very excited to be here is Sean. Uh, so, and I get to make fun of everybody because I'm the boss and they can file a, their complaints with HR. Uh, I'm Terry Crandall, the the founder of Voting Smarter, um, and you know just a quick word about our team. Right, we're 23 people working together to change uh, America and hopefully eventually the world to be a better place. We're trying to make it easy to get informed when you vote and when you shop, and make sure that we can all be engaged citizens without it taking over our lives. Um, mm-hmm. We are, as you can see, our team is very diverse. We welcome points of view from all sides. um, And we try and give you the most unbiased uh, sort of coverage of elections in our tools and of companies in our tools. And this is our one spot where we cut loose and we tell you how we see it from our individual perspectives. Uh, We really appreciate you guys listening, all six of you, and uh, hopefully tell a friend. Tonight's format, uh, we're adopting a new format where we're gonna talk about the news. Uh, We'll go through some of the stories of the week, do a quick hot take on the right and the left perspective, and then 
we're going to do a deep dive. Tonight's deep dive, uh, we're going to talk about the, the stock trading rules for Congress and if they should be changed. We're going to uh, talk about another rule change in the news, the filibuster in the Senate. We'll tell you what it is, how it works, and should we blow it up? And if we have time, we'll talk about the debate over voting rights that's taking place in Congress and around the country. So let's, let's jump in with what's been going on uh, in the last week or so. So this week, we saw a proposal from the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, and other members of the Democratic Party there to propose universal health care in the state. Uh, they want to cover everybody, including undocumented immigrants. And they've crossed a couple major hurdles to make that happen. California has major budget surpluses in the moment. And uh, the Democrat majorities in their state legislature and in Sacramento are fond of the idea of state-run health care. Uh, across the world, uh, we're seeing different uprisings and conflict. We're seeing things in Kazakhstan, and we're also seeing uh, tensions rising between Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, the US and Russia had bilateral conversations, as well as conversations with NATO, and Russia seemingly made it clear that they are not willing to accept a Ukrainian membership into NATO, which is the big sticking point uh, on these talks and, uh, and why tension is arising there. Coming back to America, we're seeing uh, an interesting moment of bipartisanship where both Senator John Ossoff on the left and Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, both proposing changes to the rules around congressional stock trades. Uh, there's been some members of Congress who've made uh, quite a bit of money during their term. And uh, some argue that they're receiving benefits from insider information. In other government news, we're a, the number two at the Federal Reserve was forced to resign amid a stock trading scandal of their own. Uh, the vice chair, Richard uh, Clarita, quietly admitted last month that he had failed to fully disclose financial trades in February of 2020. In another scandal, uh, 16 prominent universities have been sued by the federal government for collusion. Uh, Yale, Brown, Caltech, University of Chicago, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, Duke, Emory, MIT, Notre Dame, UPenn, Vanderbilt, and Rice have all been accused of using uh, financial information to determine whether or not an applicant should be admitted. And that is against the rules if they work together to do that. So we'll see what happens in that case. Speaking of the courts, the Supreme Court ruled on the mandate requirement by President Biden and OSHA that large companies require regular testing or vaccine mandates by their employees. In a 6-3 decision, the conservative justices uh, decided the, the day and the vaccine mandate was knocked down for large companies. Uh, but in a, I believe, 5-4 decision, uh, the vaccine mandate was held up for healthcare workers. And lastly, a story that we've been keeping our eye on is uh, one from Newsweek. They released their list of most responsible companies, whatever that means, for 2022. And the reason we care about that is because many of us want to shop our beliefs. We want to shop with companies that share our worldview, whether it's on the right, on the left, in the center, somewhere else, because our dollars go directly to politicians. And that's why we built our new browser extension that matches you with the companies that donate where you would if you had the money. So gentlemen, let's jump into these issues. Let's start off with universal healthcare. Isaac, you're on the road. I'm going to start with you. Uh, you are you are on the uh, your words the far left. Where would the far left stand on universal healthcare in California? Um, well, I, I think the far left has kind of been on the universal healthcare uh, side of things at, nationally and in California. Uh, Gavin Newsom 
I think he's playing, taking a, a play out of the Bernie Sanders playbook, which he just was up to um, in the last uh, presidential election. And so it's it, it's not it's not surprising that he's taking a, a a play out of that playbook when California is a bellwether for liberal politics in the country, and Bernie Sanders got Bernie Sanders got pretty far in the last election. And so it's kind of it's kind of a kind of it's like a litmus test. It's something of a litmus test in that it makes sense on the federal level for the most liberal candidate to do that, and then for him to do that. Uh, so I think it makes sense. I think it's right in the playbook. I think it's right in line, and, and I'm all for it, but I'm also in California, so that's unfair a little bit. I mean, you're driving through red country right now, right? That's flyover. I am. You know, <laughs> but uh, better barbecue. The, uh, and lower, very true. lower gas prices fill up while you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Adam, let's keep this on the left, right? Uh, being more on the center left, what would you say the what what's the proponent side? What's the pro argument um, that Gavin Newsom is making to say that California government should be involved in 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 the healthcare system and private insurance? Yeah, I mean, he, I've actually I was listening to a podcast about him recently and just like hearing like he's a very like you know energetic guy, um, and I think like I don't know if I can speak to all the different reasons that there might be. Um, people kind of more towards the center on it in terms of like the left. Um, the only thing I can really think of is like if there's going to be some sort of like, you know, population effect that's going to happen, it's going to incentivize more people to kind of go there now that this is available. And I, I guess just making sure that they have the infrastructure to anticipate that and deal with it. But I think other than that, like I'm a huge fan and I think great play by him. Um, obviously, like, like Isaac said, it's a very liberal state. And I think even... Um, I mean, I don't know exactly where Gavin is, like, in terms of, like, you know, extreme left or, or maybe a little bit further in, but he's it's definitely something. He's in the French something... laundry level of the left. Okay, that's that's what I figured, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely a great play, as long as and, they keep, you know, those things in mind. You know, I think you make a really smart observation, and, and it's probably because you're an economist, and, <laughs> and it's the idea that it's going to help with population, right, because California has seen an exodus of- Yeah, that's like, true. Like Isaac's driving to Texas right now. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, that is interesting, especially it, it will cover undocumented immigrants. And, and so that, that's a really interesting take that maybe their thought at the top is, if it's more than just, hey, we got to help people and they're, and they're positively motivated, um, that this will also maybe stem some of that exodus if people can save money on, on their health care. Now, Andrew, I'm going to go straight to you being a libertarian because I just said universal health care saves money. And I'm guessing you would disagree with that. Um, and so let it, let, it, let it rip. Sure. Two things here. You know, if, that's what, if this is what California wants to do, good for them. I don't live in California nor do I, you know, ever plan to. I'm in New Hampshire. I'm more concerned about what New, what New Hampshire does. And that's really libertarianism right there. You know, you do you. It's not, I'm not paying for it. It's not bothering me. So I could, I could care less. Uh, ideologically uh, wise there, I, I, I know there is studies out there to show that yes, universal health care does save money when compared to the system we have now. I'm not going to, you know, lie, lie about that. Um, but with that said, I think that's because in this in this country we don't have what a a true free market health healthcare system in this world, whether it be certificate of need laws, the amount of regulation through, through the uh, FDA, government setting prices in terms of healthcare, so on and so forth, um, uh, adds to that adds to the cost. Um, I don't think this world's ever seen a true free market healthcare system. Uh, this country definitely hasn't seen one. Um, so until we see that, um, you know, we're really never going to know which one's better and which one costs less. Well, you've, you've recently moved right from Massachusetts, right? I I hear a little bit of that, you know, uh, Ben Affleck in your, in your, Mm -hmm. in your voice there. 
Yeah. Uh, and your face, for those of you listening at home, uh, Andrew Wahlberg. is the spitting image of skinny Ben Affleck. And uh, so, not Batman is what I'm saying. Uh-huh. And, and so you're now living in New Hampshire where, yeah. right, if, if you want to cut off your own arm, as long as you don't hit anybody with it, it's cool. Um, <laughs> it, whereas in Massachusetts, right, it was state-run healthcare. Have you needed healthcare? Do you sneak across the border when you need it? Like what, tell, tell me about that sure. briefly about that experience. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, of course, when we had Governor Romney now, of course, Senator in Utah. Massachusetts Obamacare that we know of here and today started in Massachusetts. They called it Romney Care. It was actually designed and bought for Republicans. And look, I'll admit it. We had it in my family. Absolutely. We did it. I I, I had it and I used it every once in a while. It's like you were in the mob. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. We had some bets in Southie. We collected bets. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, I think it comes down to a lot, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot about, you know, forcing things, what you do. I try to live my life as ideologically consistent as you can, right? Can't always do that. You, you know, you know what I mean? You can't always do that. You got it. You're, you're, you, we live in a system. I know I disagree with how our healthcare system is in this country, but I have to live with it, with what it is. And if that's the options I have to take, that, that that's what I have to take. Now up here in New Hampshire, we don't, as far as I know, we, I mean, if we do, it's very small. We don't really have a state run health insurance pro, uh, and program whatsoever. I haven't really needed my health insurance. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate. I don't really need to go to the doctors or anything like that, but from the people I uh, do hear from uh, who live in the state and use it, uh, mostly all private, tend to enjoy it very well. Um, whether that be the one that the state offers because I uh, to their state employees, because I, I work with them, of course, a lot. They tend to love it. And the citizens I work with every day tend to love their choices here, too. Um, that, that's, all I, that's, that's all I can say. Personally, for myself, I don't deal with a lot of health, health insurance because, again, I don't really use it. Okay. I don't. Um, and, and that's yeah, that. I, know you, I mean, if I look like Ben Affleck, too, I wouldn't need it either if I was a young buck. Um, <laughs> I'm already, I'm at that stage of my life where I have different pills, different times of the day. So, mm-hmm. uh, the, but they're mostly for my mental problems. Ben, all right, coming from the right, um, what, what's, I mean, rather than roll your eyes and say, oh, California, right? What, what's the counter argument here to the, the uh, clearly my dog hates it, but you can hear him barking in the background. Um, what's the counter argument to Gavin? And the Democrats here. So there's no counter argument to everyone having health care and more important quality health care. Uh, but the points that needs to be raised here is a where is this health care coming from? Uh, more importantly, who will be paying for it? Uh, how are you going to replace an existing structure that is the private health care system? How are you just going to you know, do away with that and, and update it into some new state run state funded entity, right? Is there any blueprint for that? Has that ever been done before on, on such a massive scale? Uh, and then also will the quality of a state run healthcare system be better than private healthcare? I mean, for the median, the median citizen, uh, I think that's where you would have to base your point of, of study on. Uh, but I know personally, I have family from Ireland, and anytime they need a, a major surgery, Ireland, a country with, uh, I'm not sure if it's state-run exactly, but it's it's not a, it, entirely a private healthcare system. Anytime they need some major operation, right, they're coming over to America. They're getting it done in New York. They're getting it done in in Chicago, in you know, in, in D.C. So I, I think the question needs to be asked: If you're going to get rid of of private healthcare because you want everyone to have access to it. Well, there's going to be people who the quality of their healthcare is going to decrease, right? So I think that's what we need to balance here: is do we need to do we want to lower the quality of of healthcare for perhaps a median person in, in California, uh, and you know as a result have some people who aren't covered gain coverage, or do we want to try to figure out maybe more of a hybrid system where we can get these people who who aren't covered? Maybe we can, you know, I hate to use the term pull them up by the bootstraps, so but maybe we can. Get them to the point economically where they can get on a, a, a healthcare plan rather than just 
kind of taken a wrecking ball to an already uh, a system that's already in place that has worked pretty well. I do think Miley Cyrus lives in California. So the wrecking ball is a, an apt uh, analogy. So the truth is I don't have the statistics because why prep for these things? Uh, but Medi-Cal is a robust program, right? Here in, in California where we're headquartered and uh, meaning my house. And so the, I know that it's, there's a difference between helping those who cannot reach um, financially get healthcare. Um, so yeah, look, I think this would be a great conversation uh, and an in-depth review, maybe as this moves down the road. Um, so, so yeah, we'll put a pin in this conversation and maybe talk about the pluses and minuses, the successes and failures abroad and at home of, of the healthcare system. Uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on that and would love to pick that apart. Um, so, uh, Isaac, yeah, did you want to weigh in one last moment before we moved on? Um, there's no way to weigh in in only a, a small period, in like a small period of time. But I will say that our other Western counterparts do love their national health system over in the UK. It's, it's almost an honor to work for them. And they, on a very large scale, have made it work. And so if they can do it, I don't see any reason why California may not be able to do it. And so between them as a Western counterpart, Cuba as a, as a, as a, as a counterpart closer to home in our own backyard, being able to pull it off and at different scales, um, and, and definitely at more like local city levels in different places over time, like I think it can be done. And, but these are all rebuttals from me as a far left to 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 the right and so that's a bit unfair so i'll stop there i will definitely stop there. i'm beating an old drum it's i want to chime in too oh yeah right. sean yeah really every first world country has free health care we're we're getting bodied by saudi arabia and russia they have better health care than us that's embarrassing i just say we can't do it are we too stupid to do it there's too many people in this country to do it there's countries with much bigger populations that have free healthcare. We're also one of the richest countries in the world. I think we can pay for it. California can pay for it pretty easily. I'd like to it see it of, in the rest of the states. We can well, pay for it again, I, I, think, I think this what do you, is a What do people think insurance for... is? Do you think you have an individual insurance? What do you think insurance does? When you pay for insurance, what do you think your money is doing? It is not paying for your healthcare. You are already paying for other people's health care. You're just doing it in a complicated system, which we do not need. So you will save money, it will uncomplicate the system, and everyone will get free health care. It's just, it's just the better so, option. It's the why every that, country has just we, decided to do that. So, again, I think this is this. Can I just get one point in? Can I get one point in? Okay. In, in, in a private insurance Sean's right that you are paying for other people's insurance, but those people are also people who are, they're paying for your insurance in the event that you need it, right? You're not paying for someone who's not paying into that plan. So that's- Who's that's not paying it. into it? Who, who in, this, in this model of, isn't paying into it? Because there's, no, there's gonna be, depending on your tax bracket, there's gonna be yeah. some people paying a lot more into it than other people are. A lot more of their, their net worth and their, their median income. I gotta say, I am very, very excited, right? We have touched a nerve in the group. We're doing healthcare next week and I'm excited about it because um, all of those places that you tell me have public healthcare also have a private market and that's where the rich people go and they get treated not in six months, they get treated in six days. So I cannot wait to have this battle, but it's not tonight. Our politicians go to Mexico and Canada to get their surgeries because their healthcare system is so bad they go to private run places well, let, again, you're, gonna to, you're gonna have to move us by force terry yeah i'm gonna have to start mutant mofos uh up in this so uh russia 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 okay we don't really have a political take on that what about um we're gonna do a deep dive on the stock trading so we can say that since we definitely went after it on healthcare, which i love Let's talk about this higher education story, right? So uh, the federal suit uh, alleges that these colleges 
um, committed antitrust violations because the way they work together to determine the financial aid awards for students, right? So it's, it's about need versus acceptance. So the rule is you can share sort of your guidelines, right? From that powerhouse Rice University to maybe MIT. They can talk to each other and sort of say, this is how we define need and whether we're gonna let you in. So real quick, the question I pose, should universities take into account the ability to repay the loans or pay up front for the service they provide in their admittances? Is that an open question or is that a question that you're gonna direct that to someone? I, I mean, I'm, I let it sit. I let you write down your notes. Uh, don't write down mm. while you're driving. Uh, we started with the left last time. <laughs> Let's go to the right. Let's hit Ben up. Uh, ben from DC, uh, you're alive. No, okay, Ben, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm thinking that, you know, it's good that we're finally holding some of these universities to account. Uh, but I think we need to look more into curriculum, uh, some of the allegations of if there is bias on the campuses uh, in grading and academics, anything like that. Uh, I think that's what I would rather have investigations into these schools focused around. But I think it's good that, you know, and I'm not too aware of the details of this scandal, right? But if they're using financial data, whether it's to favor wealthy individuals or favored non-wealthy individuals. I don't think that should have any kind of incentive uh, or it shouldn't have any effect. Oh, go ahead, Derry. No, 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 that's totally fair. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, but my question here is like, is education different or is it the same? Any product, right? If you want oh, to get a same. mortgage, if you want to buy a car, if you want to make a big purchase, they test your ability to repay. So, should universities even take that into account? Because that's what these guys are doing. And they're determining, okay, well, we only want to give financial aid to a certain percentage, or we only want to give a full ride to a certain percentage. And so this is how we're going to establish need. So, uh, so should there be a national standard? Should it matter if you can repay? Or should everybody just go to college and get indoctrinated? Ben? So I think... And I think the existing rule is if as long as they're not, you know, colluding and planning with one another or discussing how this this uh, conspiring with one another with, you know, how to use this financial aid and how to apply it to admissions, I'm fine with it if it's on an individual level, right? Because at the end of the day, especially private universities, right, they're they're a business at the end of the day. And you know, they have a right to make decisions over what affects their bottom line. But like, as in anything else, any other kind of industry, when you have any kind of collusion between multiple uh, entities, that's when it starts getting a little bit uh, fishy, murky. That's when I think we need to start looking into it and, and you know, breaking up a, a potential monopolistic type uh, of enterprise. So Sean, I'm gonna to come to you and let me preface the question this way, right? So many of the universities listed uh, in this, in this uh, court case, take Yale, for instance, they are not tuition dependent. So there's two types of university, especially private, one that has a massive endowment that makes a couple percent a year and funds the entire operation like Yale does. Um, and others um, take like Chapman University here in Southern California that is tuition dependent, right? They have a smaller endowment. And so the gobs of money they charge their students actually goes to pay for operations. Um, should these, these top tier universities minus Rice, should, <laughs> should, they, should they be even like considering this? Where are you on this, Sean? I'm an advocate for free college. So. But in free college world, and private schools? No, in my world, I would get rid of private schools. I would get rid of private schools. I would get rid of charter schools. I mean, charter schools just funnel out uh, educator funds for like public education. 
which just makes public education for everyone who can't afford charter school even worse. Would you support vouchers for free college? Don't need How about vouchers for free what? college? So like if I wanted to go to Harvard, clearly I can't get in, but let's say I could, they say no. And uh, should I get a voucher or should I have to go to MIT? Oh, I would, I literally do not care about these top tier they're only top tier organizations because they funnel all the money from it. Like, uh, like it's no surprise. Like a lot of these people that go to MIT or Yale or a lot of these places don't really deserve to be there or Stanford. Like a lot of them pay to be there. Unsurprisingly, I not even like the top stories, but most people there are no better than a good majority of other people. And a lot of people probably deserve more to be at those actual schools, but just didn't have an opportunity because they lived in a lower income area, didn't have the same education as someone else. One of the things just because I saw... those people, and then those people will go on to like higher level jobs. They'll go into Wall Street or they'll go into Silicon Valley. Government. I think you mean government, Sean. These are the primary funnels into our bureaucracy. Yeah, and I want to change that. I think I like, I'm with you. There's a reason why our Congress and government is made up of 80 year old boomers that are all old and white. Hey, let's not hate old men. people, okay? <laughs> okay. So, um, okay. Adam, um, coming from the, the center left again, where. Where are you on this story? Are you are you worried like, oh no, our secret recruiting methodology is under attack? Or are you more like, yeah, because you go to a, is your school public or private? Uh, they actually talked about this in my class. It does get some public funding, but I think most of it is private. So. Yeah, I thought, be, I, I mean, we, I don't want to put your business in the streets where you go to school unless you want to, but you are taking <laughs> like an econ of education class, which I think, uh, have um, you guys talked about this in your course? I, would, I mean, we've talked about a lot of related things. Um, Bring it up. Own, okay. own, raise your damn <laughs> hand. All right, raise your okay. damn hand. Impress your professor. You know, I was talking on a podcast the other night about, <laughs> come on, own this. Okay, we're going to get you an A in that class. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, no, I, th I think you guys touched on a lot of, like, the important, like, structural issues that are at stake here you know you and ben um obviously collusion is you know a you know it's a difficult thing and um i think the one thing that i thought about is we need to think of rethink what ability to repay means um because you know we, we talk about the human capital model in my class um the idea that like you know you kind of like have this human capital which is it's kind of like all the assets you bring to the you know, to the workforce, to the labor force. And I think um, thinking about people's accumulation of human capital as their ability to repay instead of just, you know, their, you know, their current financial ability or maybe their parents' financial ability, um, but just like in, investing in people's human capital um, and making sure that they can repay that way, whether it's through, you know, giving the university a good name through um, what they do in the, in the workforce or in academia, if they want to do that. You know, so, some universities were toying with the idea of taking a percentage of future earnings instead of charging you tuition. And I, I kind of like that idea in the sense of um, if they don't deliver value, if they don't open doors to you, if they don't add to human capital, because here's what's going to happen. As a, as a recovering college professor, um, believe me, I, you know, I love that job. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing job, um, but it's highly overpaid, right? One student paid my salary, maybe two, out of anywhere from 30 to 75. Yeah. So there's all that other junk going. Um, so, and that, that's at multiple private schools that I've taught to, or I've taught at. And, and so this idea mm. that if they're not adding value, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna go out into the workforce and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you're you're about to get hit. You're close to graduating, and you're gonna be like, I spent this much time 
and this much money doing this? There's not, I don't have to know anything about jazz or geology to do my job. Um, now, does it make you a more creative thinker? Or does it help you innovate? Absolutely. Um, but the value proposition of a four-year degree needs to be challenged. And uh, I think that um, this, is an, this was a surprising move, right? By a cynical economist, I was surprised to see that these top tier universities were being um, pilloried by the Department of Justice um, since I think, right, the Iron Triangle exists and higher ed is part of the Iron Triangle. Um, we're gonna give the last word on this to Isaac because I know he wants to weigh in. Uh, Isaac, what you got? Um, I think that this conversation has been great. Um, I think that weighing in only for me means answering the question because I think we went in a lot of different directions. And the original question is, what do we think of the colluding? And, and I'm gonna answer strictly that because there's a lot of other directions, but I'll answer strictly that. And in my day job, I'm, I'm a data analyst. Um, and what I did for, for Voting Smarter was act as a bit of a, as a data person as well. And one of my heroes, DJ Patil, who was the US chief technologist or chief data scientist for Obama, um, He's been pushing for a bit of an ethics conversation and and I think about that in this and I'm thinking about what did those colleges ask for that data for. When they asked for it in the first place, they said that they would use it for themselves to be able to make their judgments and whatever kind of marketing or promises or, or restrictions they said about whether or not they would check to see if they were financially viable students to be able to pay. And if they said that they would, if they said that they wanted to check their backgrounds before they admitted them, fine. If the student applied, then that's fine. It's a, it's an agreement that they made between themselves. Like they're young adults, you can make that agreement. That's fine. But what I'm fairly certain they did not say was that they would share that information between institutions, and that in and of itself is a is a breach of confidence between those institutions and the students. And so. In that way, I think that the institutions are wrong and I'm very glad to see an antitrust suit. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that I'll comment on in that alone um, for this one. But yeah, that's my opinion on it. You know, and, and, and that, 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 that opinion is appreciated. And I think it's one of those moments where we're all like, yeah, I don't care. It's not about politics. Um, so I think we all agree with that opinion, Isaac. So thank you for that. Um, mm -hmm. One of, the other, one of the other news stories we talked about was um, the Supreme Court decision on the mandate. So rather than relive our, you know, rather than have PTSD and start talking about COVID and all these mandates and masks and all this jazz, my question when I read this story is, why the hell is every decision in the Supreme Court party line, right? Um, I get that only the toughest decisions get to the Supreme Court. But this one, it was either constitutional or unconstitutional for the administration to impose a vaccine mandate, right? There's nothing in the constitution about best intentions or what's best for the country. Um, and so I was, you know, I've been repeatedly surprised by both right-leaning justices and left-leaning justices when it comes to these sorts of decisions. So do any of you, right, uh, anybody have a real hot take on, on these Supreme Court decisions? <clears throat> okay, we'll let, I, I could... we'll let sleeping court justices lie then? <laughs> no, no, of course not. We, All right, hit it, Isaac, get it. Get it. I think that at least since the 60s, uh, there's been a bit of a strategy admitted. I'm going to point fingers here on the right to for judicious kind of thing. I think they saw that they weren't winning public opinion. I think that at least federal politicians saw that they weren't winning public opinions. They weren't winning boardrooms they, and they weren't winning in the streets. And so they went for something that has long term value, which are the courts those are the people that make the decisions no matter what happens it, it, if it gets adjudicated then they then it goes off to the courts and so 
they started off with the highest courts in the land. And since then, uh, Republicans have started to either fill the Supreme Court or fill as a pattern, um, federal, 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 the federal appellate, excuse me. Um, and so I think that that's kind of been a strategy and it works. It really works. Now, does it get them any fans? Is it really like the hot thing? Does it win the like Senate? Is it like the cultural, does it, does it stoke the culture wars? No, but does it at the end of the day um, kind of put things in a bit of a bind when the liberals, when the left like myself get a little bit above our bridges? Yes, it does. Um, and when it may not be entirely legal or constitutional, but when we want to do something because it's what we think is the right thing to do, yeah, it stops us in our tracks. And so I think they have a good strategy. I just, that's, I think that they've been picking people that have their values because the law is just a set of, it's a book. I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of books and you can read what you want um, as long as you don't read too, too much out of the lines. I, I, I hear what you're saying and we're gonna go to Ben next. I do have one thing I wanna ask you first, Isaac. Um, sure. Do you disagree with the decision then do you agree with Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan that the vaccine mandate was constitutional and therefore the, the conservative justices, you know, through this strategy you mentioned, um, were incorrect in reading the law? Or, or like, who do you think got this right just from, from your perspective? Mm. We're talking... Mm. Constitutionality, not is it safer, is it better, should we all get vaccinated? I'm not asking any of that, but does the federal government have the right to use OSHA to require employers to make their, their employees test and get vaccinated? Um, in that way, I think that the Supreme Court got it wrong. Now, whether like this, the, the country has the right, to, the federal government has the right to push whatever levers they want to do the things that they want to do. Now, whether or not the people agree with it at any given point in time, whether or not we voted for it, that's a different thing. But like OSHA is at the will of the federal government. The federal government decided to do something and like, cool. Now, if we don't want to follow that rule, then I'd like to change the way we spend the federal defense budget. But, you know, that's not that's that's a different thing. But like they have the authority in the rules. They made the change. The Supreme Court went the other direction. I don't think that that's fair. So that's my take. Okay, Ben. It's a hot one, but it's my take. Hey, hey, you're allowed it. That's what this is about. Ben, you wanted to, you wanted to go after it. Yeah, so just a, a rebuttal, if I could, to two things. Number one, I, I think this notion that like since the 1960s that Republicans have been knowing that they're gonna lose in federal elections and losing popular opinion, I just you know pulled up the 1984 election results. Ronald Reagan won 58.8 percent of the vote, 525 electoral votes, and the one state that Walter Mondale squeaked out was his home state of Minnesota. That's the only thing that would have you know it would have been a 538 to zero, and we're talking about the mid 80s here. And then subsequently, George H. W. Bush had a, a pretty big landslide win. Uh, George W. Bush won the popular vote in 2004. The popular vote. Sorry, that's my in, in 2004. Uh, and then, you know, I, I don't know what, what the strategy has been and, what, and why it took 50 years to implement. But as recently as 2016, we had a 5-4 liberal majority, uh, really 5-3 for part of that year before the 2016 election, before Gorsuch was confirmed. Uh, so what I think here is that people on the left likes it stir this up around election time. And it's this big boogeyman that Republicans are, are rigging the game and, and, and rigging the system. I think it's the same way Republicans use uh, you know, the, the, the abortion issue to get their evangelical voters out. I think Democrats use this big, like, you know, the right is they're going to stack the courts. We're, we're going to lose our voting rights, et cetera. Uh, I think it's mostly posturing because, you know, as like I said, as recently as 2016, we had a liberal majority on, on the Supreme Court. So, and we've had some landmark decisions in, in the last decade or so that have, that have gone uh, you know, to the left. So I, I just don't buy this argument that Republicans have been playing this you know, kind of evil long game where they're, you know, they, they know they're losing the popular vote and popular opinion and, and they're you know, stacking things in their favor as a way to circumvent it. I, I don't buy that at all. 
I, I like this conversation. And again, I feel like this, we, we found another moment where we can sort of do a deep dive. Because again, I'm, I'm this Pollyannish guy who's like, wait, the law is the law. I read the constitution and it means this. But there's these fun, and, and I think our listeners moving forward might, might benefit from this conversation between, right, originalism and that the constitution is a living document and that we need to view it through the prism of today. And what does that mean for decisions, um, right? I, I remember during the Kavanaugh um, confirmation and the conversation about precedent. Well, we, when it's about abortion or Roe v. Wade, precedent uh, must, must hold, right? We gotta, we gotta believe in precedent. But if we went back to any of the civil rights decisions of the 1800s, well, those precedents needed to be overturned, my friends. So um, I, I think I would love to deep, do a deep dive on this. So, so now we've got healthcare, we've got the court. This is awesome. Um, we've actually done, done some good stuff um, so far. Let's do uh, what we were thinking about the stock trading. Let's, let's try and run a, a deep dive on this. Um, Andrew, our libertarian, said this. He thought this was a really cool issue. Should members of Congress have to, uh, you know, set their stock trades into a blind trust? Should it be passive? Should they have to divest? Should they only be allowed to buy mutual funds? Basically, what we're saying, if you're like, if your eyes just glazed over, should members of Congress who have access to national security information. They know what votes are gonna pass before they ever bring it to the floor. They know where the next military base is gonna be built. Rest in peace, Harry Reid, right? It's how he made millions of dollars. Um, are, should Congress benefit from that inside knowledge? Like Nancy Pelosi does in her portfolio, right? Like if you're a smart person, Somebody needs to start the Pelosi hedge fund that just mirrors her portfolio. So, so Andrew, as a libertarian, like, hey, right, which I believe is also called the effort party, right? Do what you want. Um, should politicians be held to a higher standard? Should they be should they be banned from trading stocks while they're in office? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, we are kind of effort. Do it. Do what you want. However, um, you know, what they're doing is fraud. I mean, we, they have access to the information and, uh, and uh, we don't. Unless Congress is, is more than willing to make all those quote unquote classified meetings and classified information completely open to all 325 million people. Yeah, absolutely. Then yes, feel free to stock trade as you want, but as that's gonna be classified to only those 530 something odd members, then nope. Then I don't think they should get the, the get those privileges. All right, and so I think I think um, Andrew makes the point about fairness. It's unfair. It's inside information, and that's from the far right. Anybody on the left disagree with Andrew that with this, or is this a place where we found consensus? I like. I agree. Not. I. I say it should be illegal. I say they should just have no money in the stock market at all. If you're going to be a in government and is it, all this information is going to be private and you're just basically going to commit uh, insider trading, then no, I don't think you should have any access to it. I mean, it's the same thing with like lobbying. Oh, it's not illegal when we do it. But <laughs> it's illegal when everyone else does it. No, I, I'm with you, brother. I mean, lobbying, it, it's funny. Um, one, of my, one of my professors in grad school, the president of Claremont Graduate University is an expert in corruption. He wrote this amazing book called Tropical Gangsters. He's well-known, he consults with all these governments. I'm totally smooching his butt. His name's Robert Clickgard. And um, I said to him in a class, like we've just endogenized corruption. Right? And so that's economist speak, 
for we've just made it legal. We've, we've built it into the system. We've made it legal to be corrupt through lobbying. So this is one of those really interesting moments, right? Where John Ossoff, right? Where Ben worked his Ossoff to not let get elected in Georgia a year ago. <laughs> um, and, and Kevin McCarthy agreed. Right? And maybe Kevin McCarthy's just not smart enough to make the right investments. But clearly, I think um, it seems plain as day. And I thought the Ryan, when, when Paul Ryan was um, Speaker of the House, I thought they had addressed this. Am I wrong, Ben? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I thought they had addressed stock trades by members of Congress. Because I used to rail against this in my class. No, I don't. Uh, I know there was a bit of an uproar over some members uh, like pre-COVID who moved a lot of money around right after a uh, classified briefing. So I know that kind of reignited the whole uh, debate into this, but I don't know about, about Paul Ryan. I'm not sure about that. Again, this is not formal investment advice. I'm not telling you how to invest your portfolio. But go online, look up where Nancy Pelosi buys stuff and buy that. <laughs> Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, Terry, if I may, one, one other point I, wa I want to, you know, add, add a thing, you know, people are going to hear, it, you know, hear information. And then, of course, everyone's got to find, you know, have to make their financial decisions based on information they have, right? Right. I mean, if I hear some information that's going to highly impact my financial decisions, of course, I'm going to make, I'm going to make those changes. I think where the difference that comes in, into Congress, whereas let's say you work for some company and you hear information and you hear some information from a board meeting versus confidential information from Congress or, you know, two different, two different avenues, right? If I'm on some board and some company, and I hear some information um, that's not technically government classified. If it gets out, it gets out. But if we just know it, we just know it. I would say that trading is fine. But in Congress, I think it's such a different ball game, right? Because this is because that is classified. If that information gets out, somebody's going to jail. Um, I mean, technically, if you were on the board of a company, and yeah. let's say it was a pharmaceutical company, and yeah. you got word that you had FDA approval, mm -hmm. it would be illegal. Yeah. For you to buy additional shares of that company, or mm -hmm. options that you know that that would benefit mm -hmm. on that company. Whereas if you're a member of Congress who oversees the FDA, maybe not. Yeah. If okay. it was the other way around, if it was the other way around, I don't think I would be too upset. But the way it is now, it kind of does ring me, ring me the wrong way. Okay. Now, it, one way to mitigate this would to be to pay members of Congress more. Mm-mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Okay. I mean, should we be paying them what high-level board members get paid at, at Fortune 500 companies? I don't know, man. $100 a year like my state representatives get sounds pretty good. Look, I'm running for Congress after all this because I just want to get out of Social Security. Mm. I want to pension for life. You want to get, you want to get whiteboarded by... Uh... Like what's her name, Katie Porter? Oh, Isn't I she... cannot wait. Katie Porter get... is my. I can, I want to go whiteboard to whiteboard on the debate stage. I will draw graphs that make her cry. Okay, that sounded sexist. And so I I will draw graphs that defeat her arguments. Um and and so yeah no I I can't wait. We're gonna have to somebody edit that out. Um. Okay, so I think we have unanimity here. Let's jump to our other conversation about the filibuster. Isaac had a hot take on the filibuster. He's like, you know what? That thing's dead. Phil is a buster. I'm out. Um, what? I, I, and I was like, okay. Talk to me, Isaac. Okay. You, you know, it's a, it feels a little unfair that you started with me. because, But, you know, I'll, I'll start it. Um, I've seen so many job applications that say that they want someone with a bias for action, and then our country's leaders are allowed 
or at least they've made it such that they can just go term after term after term, right, rattle sabers at one another, do barely anything, get like an infrastructure bill built like bill passed, be able to say that they're not shutting down the government, and then be able to come home and be happy with that. And I'm not happy with it. I, I would be much happier personally if the government had massive swings back and forth between our, our like collective ideological positions and experiences with, with all these different ideas, for better or for worse, even ideas I disagree with, and then have it swing back when the, when the tide changes at some point or another, whenever that happens. And rather than have all this inactivity because of the filibuster, I would right. much rather a world like that. I want a bias for action. That's what I want. I don't I'm going to go to bed next. I'm going to go to bed next, but I'm going to take this moment to explain something to Isaac because Isaac is recently engaged, right? And you got to understand something, man. The veto wins, right? That's how me and my wife have done it forever, right? The no vote is worth more than the yes vote. Right? And that's why I don't have a vanilla ice haircut or a full back tattoo, right? Is because the no vote wins, right? My kid is not named Abraham Lincoln Crandall. Okay? Because the no, he's been, he, but he is named Benjamin Franklin Crandall. Okay? So, yeah, I did that to him. So, something you, I, I think I, I hear you, um, right? And I, and I imagine somebody on Andrew's side or my side to be like, we want stagnation in government, right? Less is more. Um, but, but Ben, you, had a, you wanted to make the, the counter argument there, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, so as someone who, listen, I, I like excitement in government as much as the next person. That's why I, I work in, in campaigns, right? But to counter what, what, what Isaac said here about massive swings going back and forth, for better or for worse, it could be for worse, right? And we don't know what for, for worse would look like. It could look pretty bad. Uh, my argument would be we've had the filibuster for X amount of years, uh, and we've made it this far. We're still standing. We're not perfect, certainly, right? There's a lot of issues that need to be fixed. But relative to the rest of the world, I would still call America the greatest country to live in. Uh, and, you know, having these massive swings we're talking about, are we talking about midterm to midterm? Every two years, we're just going to have a, a massive upheaval in, in federal policy and then have the pendulum swing all the way back the next time around. And then at a certain point, you're having people trying to up the ante and outdo each other so they can never, uh, you know, get back to, to the equilibrium. So I'm thinking as much as, you know, it would be exciting to see how much policy could change uh, if we got rid of the filibuster. You got to think that stability ultimately is better than excitement and better than than the unknown. So I think that's a little here. unfair. I think that's a little unfair to, to characterize it as a search for excitement. I think that's a little unfair. Well, that's I think what you said. What, I'm, I, I, what I said was I would prefer that because ultimately that would be in line with the with the American people's will. If the American people's will switches every two years then I think the government should reflect that. And I think that that would be an actual democracy rather than it be fixed for extended periods of time against what national polls, federal polls, local polls, and, diff and many uh, controversial places would argue they don't want change. And then their, like their, vote, their polls say that, yeah, they would. And if they were allowed to vote, they'd be willing to change. And I think that that's fine. I think the spirit of the United States is entrepreneurial. And in which case, I think that to reflect that, we should enable the government to be able to change and be as nimble as the American people have shown themselves to be. So it's not about excitement. I'd like to, to, think I'd like about to that. In here, if that's okay, Ben, um, and probably say something that is going to, much like my comment about Katie Border, hurt my ability to run for office in the future. Uh, I completely hear and feel Isaac's concern, right? There are people, they make decisions, they want to vote, and those, those votes should have consequences. The problem is 
if you look at a how the Senate and House were set up originally, right, it was sort of a House of Lords and House of Commons. Many senators were originally appointed by the state legislatures with which they represent, right? It was an insulation against these pendulum swings. It was to temper the, the, the common view of the common man at the time, now common person, right? And so um, there, it, it's interesting to me that the, the Senate is supposed to be this, you know, higher body and they're supposed to work together, but there's, there's no working together. Um, and I agree with you. I love the idea of blowing it up. Let's go. Let's make this happen. Let's feel the will of the people. The problem is, if you look at the late 1700s and especially the 1800s, um, the calamity that was the swing of power, say, in finance, right? The amount of bank crises that existed, it led to such instability, our growth curve as an economy could not sustain itself. It was up, down, up, down, up, down. We've given up a lot of that freedom to say a central reserve banking system, right? Don't get Andrew started on Ron Paul and the gold standard, right? And so, but what we paid for in that lack of maybe economic freedom is stability. And when you build something on stability, it lasts. And, and so I, I'm with you, Isaac, I think, um, and that's why we built Voting Smarter. And so I think we've, we've been talking a long time and I, and I know you guys have some great perspectives on this, but, but let's wrap it up this way. I agree with you that the people should rule and that democracy matters and that when people's mind changes, it should be the, their voice. But the problem is how costly is it to get informed? How honest are the sources you're reading, right? What, what really is the opportunity cost of getting both sides and, and, and a cogent argument? And those costs are high. And that's why we all bust our butt to build voting smarter, right? We, we are doing this because we wanna lower those costs and make it easy to get informed. If the average citizen was hyper-informed, I agree with you, those swings would be far less dramatic. But as it stands right now, we all believe our vote doesn't matter. We've all been pitted against one another. Our media is picked aside, right or left. And so that's why we're working so hard. Ben, I'll give you, I'll give you a word and maybe I'll give someone else the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, I think if we're discussing the will of the American people, I think unfortunately at this point, it's apathy, right? It's, it's disconnection from what's actually going on in our government. Uh, if you think about it in a midterm election, usually turnout for eligible voters, right? And that's not even reflective of the whole population. It's in the low 50s. So you're talking about maybe 25 to 26% of people who vote one way, 25, 26% who vote the other way. And then you have 50% of, again, not just the entire population, but uh, only eligible voters who don't even partake in these elections. So if we were to get rid of the guardrails and just have, you know, a, a quarter of the country kind of swing federal policy back and forth every every two years or so. Uh, again, I, I think, as Terry put, stability ultimately is a safer bet uh, and probably a better bet in the long run than the unknown. I'm with you, Isaac. I'm with you. The people matter. Our voice matters. How we, what we believe matters. Um, the problem is we don't live in that vacuum. Right. And, and so that's why we struggle every day to find easy ways to provide um, being informed about where companies are donating, where candidates stand and, and how you can engage simply in your democracy. Because most of us, right, we got kids. You guys aren't there, right? I'm the old guy of the bunch. We got kids. We got mortgages. We got responsibilities. 
We got our boss breathing down our neck, right? Like this guy on you, right? And so, um, look, this has been a great conversation. We've seen these different perspectives. We've seen some consensus. We've seen some strong disagreements. Tune in next week when we decide and we dissect the issues of the day. Maybe we'll do a deep dive into healthcare. Maybe we'll, we'll do a deep dive into some of these other issues that we, we got some good uh, conflict on. But this was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you so much. And, and I hope we can do this again next week. Tune in to hear it. Good night, y'all. You've been listening to Pocket Politics from Voting Smarter. Please follow us on Instagram at, at @votingsmarter, and check us out online at www.votingsmarter.org.